As I've noted in the past, there are only two churches out of the seven that received praise unmixed with rebukes, reproofs, and calls for repentance. And that was the church of Smyrna, which was the second church we looked at. And remember the name Smyrna literally refers to being crushed. And they were a congregation who were being crushed by uh, circumstances, situations, persecutions. And out of that crushing was coming the sweet fragrance of Christ. But now the church of Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love, is struggling because uh, for the same reason. What made these two churches distinct was that they faced hardships. And that's something that's easy to miss because when you read of the seven churches, you don't realize that there are all sorts of internal problems in the other five churches. But these churches' problems were primarily external. They had an adversarial culture around them that was seeking to extinguish them. And so the culture within which they were growing or existing saw the church as a threat to their peace, to their prosperity. Uh, in fact, in the idea, a threat to the unity of their community. And that's why Jesus offered a warning where he told his, his followers that you have to understand, and I hope you understand this correctly when I say it, that as Christians, we are inherently and unavoidably divisive. Not because we want to divide, not because we want to take, create conflict, but the simple fact is, if you follow his word, you're going to find there are people who are going to be opposed to doing just that. And it's not only just a, a spiritual dynamic, of course, which it is, but it's also a human nature issue. That human nature has at its heart this desire to have its own way, to do its own thing, to kind of define the world in terms that I like. And our idea of being in control of our immediate environment is, <clears throat> on one hand, a very healthy and natural thing, but where, as the proverb said, yielding avoids great offenses, there are times when God says, I know you want to be in control, but I want you to yield to me and let me be in control, which may feel at the moment like you're out of control. In other words, when God tells you to do something that's new, that's outside of your comfort zone, immediately you begin to feel the stress and try to figure out, how can I organize this moment to make sure that, yes, God is God, but that I'm still in control? Now, if you've succeeded in finding a way to do that, please let me know, <laughs> because it's never worked that way for me. I find that God is looking for me to come to a place where Solomon said, yielding pacifies great offenses. Or basically, I yield to God and say, Lord, your will be done, your kingdom come. And the greater the adversity we face and the circumstances we come into, the more we learn to surrender. Surrender absolutely, as the great Roman uh, Christian writer Andrew Murray once wrote in his classic book by that name, Absolute Surrender, that ultimately that's what God is looking for for you in your life with him, to absolutely surrender. And I know that even as I say this, there are some of you who are having kind of a brainstorm right now, because in your brain you're going, but I, I want God to be in control as long as it's the kind of control that I can sign off on. Lord, your will be done for my life, and here's what it looks like. And I find over and over again that <laughs> my, my best laid plans of mice and men oftentimes do not follow anything I had even imagined. And I found often God's plan is far worse and far better at the same time. Oftentimes it's worse in terms of what I want to see happen, 
But in the long run, I turn back and say, but God, you knew what you were doing from the very beginning, which means that I have to confess that I don't. But there's this unforeseen dynamic I think many of us have. When Jesus said in Matthew 10 to his disciples, he says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. So when, when the gentleman said, can't we all just have, live together and get along and have peace? And the echoing answer through the decades has been, I, apparently not. Apparently not. There's certain conflict built in. <clears throat> but Jesus said, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. And then he says, whoever loves, that means has a greater affection for father or mother, more than he has affection for me, is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross daily and follow me is not worthy of me. When we read things like that, we begin to sense there's kind of this oxymoronic dynamic to the Christian life that the very thing that he says, I give you peace, and yet he says, but as I give you peace, realize that that's going to cause conflict within culture. And I think many of us experienced that. The moment we gave our life to Christ, we suddenly found that there were people who were opposed to us who once had wanted to party with us, and now they don't even want us in the room. And you wonder, what happened? I didn't change, but then again, I did. I decided that what I was going to addict myself to was Jesus Christ and following him. And that really troubled them. And I had many of those friends who I've never seen or spoken to since. And some very clearly said, if you're a Christian, I want nothing to do with you. Get out of my life. We're done. And that was kind of stark and surprising but now, years later, I begin to understand because if you want to hold on to your life and be in control of your life, following Christ is not the right prescription. You have to come with God, not with a clenched fist or a closed hand, but you have to come with an open hand and an open heart and say, Lord, your will be done, not my will be done. And that inherently creates conflict so that if you speak out about something and say, well, that's wrong according to God then you're going to find people who are going to be very angry because what you're calling wrong is the thing that they're using to make them rich and powerful and in control. The believers in Philadelphia and in Smyrna could, could easily have avoided the problems, the troubles they were facing. They could have been compliant. They could have been conforming. They could have been compromising and uncritical. That's what the other five churches were guilty of, and we'll see with Laodicea as well. Yet they instead courageously chose to stand apart and to stand with Jesus and stand with his word. As, as Paul would say later on to the Corinthians, he said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old, that is the old sin-centered way of living, has gone and, and the new has come. He would go on later on in chapter 6, that same book, and say, therefore, do not be bound together with unbelievers. Literally, the word bound together is translated yoked together, like two oxen are yoked. Uh, that's the idea that they're patterned, are partnered with somebody in indulging in their immorality and their sexual indulgence and idolatry. For he goes on, he says, for what oneness does righteousness have with lawlessness? What oneness do they have? What fellowship, or literally the word koinonia, which is 
this idea that you hang together in worship and in fellowship. You share life together. You're marching in life arm in arm. He says, what fellowship does that person have with somebody who is living a life of lawlessness, who wants to live a life in darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial, which is another name for the devil, or with a unbeliever, somebody who is giving their life in service of the dark powers? What fellowship? I mean, what closeness? What harmony? And you know, the, the word there, it's really interesting. It comes from a root word, symphoneo, where we get our word symphony. He says, basically, you're marching to a different drum. You're playing a different, off a different sheet of paper, and the music is not going to sound good. There's going to be inherent dissonance that's going to arise. So one of the things that we get puzzled by as young believers is that when we give our life to Christ and we're all excited about that and we share with other people with whom we have been associated, suddenly to us there's a dissonant cacophonous sound that they don't want to listen to anymore. You know, you've heard the conversation, don't try to shove your trip down my face. You know, (laughs) that's all right for you, but I don't want to hear it and so forth and so on because to them it's an assault. It's to them the... As Paul said, to some of us, we are the the fragrance of life. So when you come to church and you hang with each other, what's happening? There's a fragrance of life that you have with other believers. But to people who are outside, literally, it's the fragrance of death, Paul said. Because essentially, it says that you are in a state of spiritual and eternal condemnation because you don't believe on Jesus. And you don't have to even say that. I've just walked up people sometimes and said, hey, has anybody ever told you about Jesus Christ? And the first words out of their mouth was, don't you judge me. (laughs) I mean, whoa, where'd that come from? Well, it comes from the fact that somebody else had shared with them about Jesus Christ and they knew that they weren't right with God and following him. And that's why he goes on, he says, what agreement, in other words, what point of agreement has a temple of God with idols? There was no, there's no common ground to build upon, in other words. Or for where, for we are the temple of the living God, and therefore come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. Now, <coughs> one of the mistakes that Christians often make is that um, the difference between uh, those who are Christ followers and are commended by God and those he criticized was over this issue of separation. Or more precisely, when they take a stand and live differently because they are followers of Jesus, they're worshiping Jesus, that there are certain directions and paths they will not take because God would not take those paths. The Lord would not go that way. Yet Paul at the same time didn't expect them to view non-Christians in this kind of way. That in other words, we don't look for regenerated behavior out of unregenerate people. That when my life changed, it changed because something, a profound change had taken place in my life. That that void in my soul was filled by the presence of the Holy God. His Holy Spirit was living in me. I was born again in the Spirit. My body became the temple of the Holy Ghost. Those things bring dramatic and marked changes into every person's life, as I'm sure most of you have experienced and know already. But when you're not saved, when you don't have the, that void, that hole inside of your soul filled with God's presence, many of the things that God calls to do make absolutely no sense whatsoever. Simply because you do not have the mathematics to add it up. And that's why Paul would go on in writing to the Corinthians by saying to them, 
I have written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. In other words, associate means in this term, the word means to closely and habitually mingle and hang out and and partake together. That basically, he says, I've written to you not, as one translator put it, make yourself at home with people who are sexually immoral. immoral. Now, this is a bigger issue in our culture today than it's ever been because you can hardly turn on your television set or watch a YouTube without some kind of sexual immorality being promoted as normal, as acceptable. And the danger is, is as we behold and watch this stuff that we begin to become accepting and no longer offended by it. We can be persuaded to embrace the very thing that God says, thou shalt not. Well, Paul goes on to say, he says, not all people, meaning the people of this world, who are immoral or who are greedy and swindlers and idolaters, in that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy or idolater or a slander, a drunkard, a swindler, With such a man, do not even eat. So here he makes a clear distinction. He says, you know, the world is going to be the world. If you go out to to dinner with a business associate or something, no big deal. But if you go out and you sit down with a brother or sister in Christ and they proceed to become debauched, they become drunken and slovenly and misbehaving and saying all sorts of ugly things, he says, you need to step back and say, you know what, if you're a Christian... This shouldn't be part of your life. And if there's not repentance, then they're probably not walking with the Lord. And he says, don't have anything to do with them. Because Paul then goes on, he says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, but he says, expel the wicked man from among you. In the context of Paul writing that, there was a situation in the church in Corinth. There was a man who was having an incestuous relationship with his stepmother, and the church was just kind of looking the other way. Because, I mean, after all, if two people love each other, how can that be wrong? Or, you know, it's just this kind of mentality that we see often in our culture. It's not for me to judge. That's their business. What they do in their bedroom is between them and God. And I believe you, you're right. It is between them and God. But God, he says, if they're doing that, they're knowingly, willfully, habitually engaging in sinful behavior. And they call themselves Christians. And they come into the church and pretend like everything's okay. And you find out, he says, you need to ask them to leave. You need to expel them from the fellowship. Now, in this day and age, that sounds so cruel and so wrong, but part of it is we've lost sight of what the church is supposed to be about. You see, we've, we've developed this idea that what the church is is a place where Christians can bring their non-Christian friends and they can be evangelized and get saved. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen. But it isn't the idea that we just say the things that will make them happy and make them want to come back. Because that becomes the the real measurement. I had such a good time, I came back. And I think to myself, if I am telling somebody the whole gospel, and I'm telling them that they have to fear God, or else they're going to go to hell for eternity, 
that there's a torturous future that's waiting for you beyond human description if you don't repent and turn from your sins. Jesus loves you so much that he died for you, but he loved you too much to not tell you the truth. And suddenly, if that person hears that and responds to that, the fear of God is what leads us to Christ. And when he talks about the sins of the world, he says, they've lost the fear of God. There's no reverence of God any longer, and so they're not terrified by it. I remember I was talking to a painter who was painting my house, and we were having this conversation. He said, well, you know, he'd gotten this whole political thing, and I said, well, you know, he says, people have always been corrupt. I mean, corruption's always part of society. And I said, yeah, but here's the difference. When I was growing up, and if you cursed in front of a woman, you felt ashamed and you apologized. We didn't even have the nerve to use the F-bomb. You know what I mean, farts and stuff. And, but it was like, you just didn't do that. If you, if a man was cussing and a woman or a children were near, everybody else would rebuke them and say, watch your mouth, there are children and women here, you know. We'd say bad things around each other, but you just had this sense that there are boundaries. You had a sense that there are some things that are right and some things wrong. And when you confronted somebody on doing something was wrong, you know what happened? They felt guilt and shame and said, yeah, I'm sorry, you're right, I'm wrong. I said, where we're at today is there is no shame. There is because there's no guilt. And there's no belief that there's any consequence for bad behavior. And so, you know, it's, it's not the gospel as we talked about last week if we're not teaching the key part of the everlasting gospel with that the angel will declare from heaven when it says later on in Revelation, he says, fear God and worship him and obey his commands. He says that's the everlasting gospel as well. You see, on a practical level, these Philadelphians lived in cities that were filled with immorality on every level. Um, that they lived on a level of immorality that we are only now beginning to reach. I think it's important for us to understand. They lived in much more corrupt cultures. They lived in cultures where that corruption had been institutionalized on the highest levels. Yet the call was not to leave, to vacate the city, but instead to stand tall as moral lights even though they were immersed in the darkness of incredible levels of iniquity, they were to be really kind of standouts in the midst. They were to go against the, the, the tide and the flow. And to varying degrees, the other five churches were the ones who allowed iniquity to seep into their churches. That sin was something that they had accommodated it was something they tolerated. It was something they rationalized or they justified. And eventually they normalized it. They just, well, that's what is. That's the way it is. Many there, like today, they saw shame as being the problem, not sin. Not the sin that produces the shame. And I, you know, my apologies to Brene Brown and all of her teachings on how shame is the biggest problem we have in our culture. And I would say, no, the thing that produces shame is the biggest problem. Shame is normal and right and good if it's in response to violating the law of God. Shame is not the cause. Shame is a symptom 
that's produced by sin, the emotion that emanates out of a guilty conscience. We might say that shame is the canary in the mine of our mind. <laughs> that you know the story of the canary in the mine. Basically, canaries would die if they got a whiff of gas so that they could see if the canary was not chirping and the canary was laying dead in the cage. Everybody vacated the mine immediately because toxic gas was on the foot, was on the room. And yet we have to understand that when we feel shame inside of us, the question we need to ask ourselves is, why do I feel that? And we've lived in a culture that says, well, you just need to realize that there's nothing that you should be ashamed of, which is basically you live amorally. You have no sense of right and wrong. Whatever you do is what you do because you're just being you. And I've had people who, you know, that I've known who told me, I'm just being mew, and I'm saying, you know what, can you become somebody else? Because I really don't like you. <laughs> this, this you that you're becoming, this is how I feel, I've just got to be true to my feelings. Well, it's like the question that was asked years ago by a comedian, he said, why do you smoke cocaine? And the guy said, because it intensifies my personality. And his response was, but what if you're a jerk? And that's the problem, when people want to be themselves, they often become jerks. You know, it's, it's helpful to have people who love you to look at you. And, and I'm not saying my wife has ever said this because she would never have a reason to. But to look at you and say, you know, you're acting like a jerk right now. <laughs> well, I am not. <laughs> but when you realize that, yeah, I am kind of being a jerk, aren't I? I'm kind of getting wrapped up in my own feelings and sensitivities. The danger is we normalize that and we say there's nothing to be concerned of. But that shame is symptomatic. It's a, it's a byproduct of sin. It's the emotion that emanates out of a guilty conscience. When shame stops chirping, our souls are in toxic danger. And that's why I think I like to remind people that when Jesus talked about the role of the Holy Spirit in the, in the church and in the life of the believers, the very first thing he said the Holy Spirit would do when it came, it was convict the world of sin. You know, we get this idea that I don't want to feel that conviction of having done something wrong, said something wrong, thought something that's not right. I don't like that conviction. It's uncomfortable. But that's the whole point. How do I know the Holy Spirit is living in you? If you see sin in your life and you repent of it. Because you came, 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 became convicted of it. So it's not about saying we're perfect and other people aren't. We're not perfect. We're not even close to it. I would never use the word perfect in association with anything that has to do with me. But what I know is that I get convicted by the things I say, things I think, things I do. And that drives me to come and say, Father, forgive me for what I have done. Now, I would grant that there's a thing called false shame. Kind of like what I feel every night when I go to bed without brushing my teeth. I mean, my mother's haunting voice will follow me to the grave. I have this feeling when I'm on my deathbed, I'm going to roll over and say, honey, would you please brush my teeth before I die? <laughs> I just don't want to face mom with a dirty mouth. I mean, it's like... <laughs> well, obviously, God isn't looking and saying, you know, you can't get to heaven because you didn't have proper dental hygiene. Although, if you don't, you may get there sooner than not you want to. 
But what I'm talking about, the shame that one feels when God says, thou shalt not, and you go, whatever. The shame that is the fruit of guilt is a guilt-based, willful, habitual lifestyle that regularly and consistently rebels, rejects, disregards, and disobeys God's ethical commands and moral laws. So that when I hear people saying, well, we're not under the law anymore, I like to correct them and say, no, you're not under the law, but if you have the Holy Spirit living in you, you do obey the law. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit, because when you look at what the laws were, it's basically God saying, these are the way that you treat other people. Sometimes when there's preachers and politicians, and sometimes I can't tell the difference, who publicly boast about their Christian faith, and yet wink at things that the Bible says are evil. When they wink at things like abortion or sexual immorality or greed or hubris. You see, it was Zephaniah the prophet who put it very simply when he said, the unjust knows no shame. The unjust knows no shame. It's not a sign of right relationship if you're not ashamed of things that are shameful. The prophet Isaiah said the, pro the problem of these people is they have no shame over what they're doing. They don't feel guilty before God. That, in fact, I, one translation put it this way. It said, evil men and women without conscience and without shame persist in evil. So shame is not this terrible thing. It is the emotional awareness. It is the canary in my head that's simply saying, that's not right. That's not good. You shouldn't be doing that. I remember when I was five years of age and my dad took me down to the, to the uh, Coronet Five and Dime. I mean, there's three of you who have lived long enough to remember what the Coronet Five and Dime was. It was this marvelous store with everything that you could possibly want, including lots of candy and toys for kids. And my dad went in there to purchase something. And as we're driving home in his car, I'm holding this toy in my hand. And he gets, says, where did you get that? And I said, at the store. <laughs> He said, did you pay for it? Well, I don't have any money. <laughs> so he did a U-turn, took me back down, took me into the manager of the store and said, my son has something to tell you. And I held up this toy and he kind of very graciously said, thank you very much. You know, it's not a good thing to steal. And I said, <clears throat> apparently now I know that. Uh, and it was interesting because I've never lifted anything since. It just stuck in my mind. You just don't take anything that's not yours. What is that? That was a shameful moment having to walk in there and face this oversized man, at least he seemed to me at five, and admit to him what I had done. But it was so important and so powerful because the message was really clear. You don't take things that don't belong to you. You don't steal. And this is not, again, a case of learning to be perfect because none of us are. We're all so imperfect. But we're talking about not imperfection. We're talking about hypocrisy. You know, you're trying to live like a $3 bill in a $1 world. It just doesn't float. It doesn't change. It doesn't, it's not right currency. It doesn't make any sense. And yet many people don't realize that. You see, the Philadelphians had an unwillingness an unwillingness to call evil good. Or as Solzhenitsyn put it, to not live by lies. 
They would not countenance a lie. They would not sit there and say, it's okay if you lie. The whole Nazi regime, the whole communist regime in Soviet Union and other places succeeded only because they convinced people that it was safer for them to tell lies than to tell the truth. It's interesting when the movie Grapes of Wrath came out and the story of the, the, the Great Depression era, loss of farming land and many people lost their farms. It was a terrible, terrible time in American history. Rather localized, but it was a very terrible time. And they made the movie of the Grapes of Wrath about these people who had to upended losing their property, loading their cars up in their trucks with everything they had and driving west to California where they later became governor. <clears throat> And the Soviets, the communists, they grabbed on this. This is a great propaganda to show how much better we have in Russia than they have in America. And they started showing it in theaters. And very quickly, they stopped showing it in the theaters for one simple reason. They said, people were sitting in the audience going, they have cars? <laughs> An unexpected dynamic. We don't even have cars. And they had lived with this lie that they were the most prosperous, wealthiest people in the world. And as the world began to let information sneak in, they had to finally admit, no, we're one of the most recessive and retarded economies in the world. The whole point is that evil men really want us to go along with their narrative because it's the only way that they can maintain their objectives is to get us to be silent or even better to agree with them when they say good is evil and evil is good. But this brings hardship with it, as it did to the Philadelphians. Ordinarily, hardship is something that you and I inherently seek to avoid, especially if some hardship is unnecessary. Um, but when it comes to questions of truth, of faith, of obedience to God, of having a clear conscience before God and man, we really have to listen to what Paul said when he really shared this song probably with Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. He said, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. And if we are faithless, he will remain faithful for he cannot disown himself. And then he said, keep reminding them of these things constantly reminding them, he said. I grant that it's often a struggle. Living the Christian life, following the Bible, is often a struggle. It puts you into all sorts of uncomfortable crosshairs and sometimes even becoming the target of certain animosity and hardships. It can require you to make decisions that can have impact upon your safety or the welfare and prosperity of your families. But you know, struggle is key to everything in life. I mean, a surgeon never becomes a healer without having to struggle through medical school and the training of being a good surgeon. A teacher never becomes a mentor without going through the struggles of learning how to be one who can impart wisdom and guidance and truth into people's lives. Administers can't become proficient without having gone through the, the pain of non-proficiency. <laughs> The business can never become profitable 
without the struggle to make it so. And the, the disciple can never be really disciplined in the ways of his master unless he goes through the works of being disciplined. It's amazing that every year 1,500 young men and women are accepted into our military academies. And before the first day of class, half of them have already dropped out because the rigors that they put them through physically are so hard that they just give up. They had the intellectual capacity. They had all the background. In fact, you know, you have to get, you know, people, senators and other people to write letters on your behalf, commending you, recommending you to go into one of our military academies. And yet with all that effort and all that they've accomplished, they end up dropping out because they just said the struggle is too hard. I know that even in terms of law enforcement in our own community, that only one out of every 20 applicants is accepted, not because they are, don't have the ability or the capacity, but oftentimes they just lack that ingredient, the endurance to hang in there long enough to qualify as someone who can protect others. Things are hard. They call re re resilience. Often we need to be relentless in working and in effort. And I think that hard work is really the secret sauce of success. Even when I talk to born-again, spirit-filled, Christ-sanctified saints. And I say it because the Bible continuously, frequently, over and over again, talks about hard works. We have become so confused in the idea that we're saved by grace and not by works that we have this idea that therefore works are not essential or part of our life anymore. And yet all you have to do is read the Bible and realize it's emphasized over and over again. We don't get saved by our works, but if we're saved, there are works. In the same way that I can buy an apple tree, but I never know for sure if it's an apple tree until I get apples on it. And there have been a few occasions where I bought plants and I planted the ground and cared for them. And when they bore fruit, it was something different than advertised. And sometimes I was even thankful. But the bottom line is, we have to understand that there is a consequence. If I've had a true encounter with Christ, it has a consequence in its expression in how I live my life. Paul, writing to Timothy, said, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Endure hardships, he went on to say, and do the work of an evangelist and discharge all of your duties of your ministry. Listen to the words. Do work, hardship, discipline, duties, responsibilities. These are things that are incumbent upon you if you are a follower. Again, the writer of Hebrews says, endure hardship as discipline, as God's ways of training you. In Proverbs, Solomon said, hard work brings rewards. In Proverbs 13, 11, he says, wealth from get-rich-quick schemes quickly disappears, but wealth that comes from hard work grows over time. Proverbs 21, he said, good planning and hard work lead to prosperity, but hasty shortcuts lead to poverty. In Colossians, or 1 Corinthians 3, 8, Paul said, the one who plants, the one who works together with the same purpose, and both will be rewarded for their hard work. In chapter 15, in the same book, he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Because as Paul would tell Timothy, the hardworking farmer must be first partaker of the crops. 
You see, there is no glide and abide in Christianity. There's no easy believism. Now, I would agree with you. Hard work was, is the consequence of sin. It's part of the curse. When Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord, God said to him, by the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. So have a great day. <laughs> well, we all understand the sweat of the brow. Yesterday I was doing something on my house. I'm up on a ladder. I was on the sunny side of the house, which in summer is not always the best place. And the sweat is just running down my brow as I'm working away, trying to do something that was way above my pay grade. But the bottom line was, I understand that sweat is a result of hard work. But when Christ returns, the beautiful thing is, that dust that you will return to is going to be miraculously reconstituted into the divine. The curse will be gone. But until then, Paul would say, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Or again to the Galatians, for this reason, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. And there's the problem, isn't it? When it gets hard, people oftentimes quit because they have basically accepted a theology or philosophy of life that nothing should be hard, nothing should be difficult. I remember when Ruth Graham was being interviewed after President Jimmy Carter had talked about um, in, a, in a Playboy interview article um, about how that he had had some lustful thoughts at time. I'm sure that made him incredibly unique and we desperately needed to hear that. So these in, in reporters, Billy Graham's doing a crusade in, in Las Vegas and they asked Ruth Graham, so have you ever considered committing adultery? And she said, no, but I've often contemplated murder. <laughs> you see, what's the difference? One is saying, I'm just going to, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to run away. I'm, I'm going to stick with what God has put in front of me and I'm going to be faithful to it. And I know that even as my wife and I celebrated our, our uh, which anniversary did we just celebrated? I think it was 53? That was it, yeah. Is that right? I mean, I, I'm old. I, I forget things. But I, I just, as we celebrate our anniversary, I thought to myself, how did we make it this long? And the answer is really simple. It's my animal magnetism. <laughs> okay. We call it body odor. I know. I get it. <laughs> but the reality is you survive a long time in marriage because you don't give up. How do you survive anything for a long time? It's that you don't give up because there will be lots of times that you want to give up. Now, I have to qualify. Sometimes there are dangerous situations. and I'm not saying people remain in dangerous situations. But I'm saying we just don't give up because it doesn't feel good or it's hard. Because everything, anything that's worth doing will eventually prove to be hard. I mean, this is why... 
Jesus began each of the instructional portions of every letter with this phrase, I know your deeds. The Greek word ergon here translated deeds means a record of your works. I know what you're, you know, basically, I see everything that you're doing. It's interesting because A.W. Pink described, made it really interesting when he talked about the balance of, of grace and works in our life. He said, on the one hand, Canaan was a free gift to Israel, which they entered by grace alone. He parted the waters twice and they crossed in. That was all grace. It was all God. But then he goes on, and on the other hand, they had to fight for every inch of it. So here we are, we enter into this thing called grace, we come into the kingdom of God, we become adopted into the family of God, and it's all of grace, it's not of me. Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God, and then he goes on to tell the Corinthians in chapter 15, therefore, for that reason, I work harder than anybody else. And some people go, well, wait a minute, no, it's all of grace. And because it's grace, I know that it doesn't depend upon me. Because as my pastor, you all always used to say, God is not nearly as concerned about your ability as he is with your availability. Another friend of mine said to me one time, he said, showing up is 90% of the job. And so it's important that Paul repeatedly reminded Timothy. He said in 1 Timothy 6.12, he said, fight the good fight of faith. Again, in 2 Timothy 4, 7, he says, I have fought the good fight of faith. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also for all who have longed for his appearing. All those who have longed for his appearing. Do you know what makes you long for his appearing? When life here stinks, <laughs> Lord Jesus, take me out of this. So what were the deeds of the Philadelphians? Well, there's four things that Jesus mentions. Number one, he says, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Now, Paul often talked about open doors in his letter. He described them as opportunities for sharing and showing the faith of Christ, the gospel. In Colossians 4.3, he says, pray for us too that God may open a door of our, for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly. So keep in mind, Paul's writing from prison. He's wearing chains on his, on his wrists and probably his ankles. And he says, well, the one thing I want you to pray for... now." is that God would give me opportunities to talk to people about Jesus. Now, if it had been me, you know what I'd been praying for? God, get these chains off my wrists, off my ankles, make this guard look the other way, and let me escape. That would have been my prayer. Or maybe, please send me more food. But he's praying, let this become an opportunity for me to tell people about Jesus. We often think of Ephesians when he got, describes the, the armor of God, and he's really gone, kind of going through the panoply of the Roman soldiers' uh, weapons and armors that he wears. He uses those as metaphors to describe who, how we fight the fight of faith. But where do you think that intimate knowledge of everything that a Roman soldier would have on him, what he would wear, came to him, except he was chained to this guy 24-7? In other words, every six hours, another guy would be chained to him. 
But he's out there looking at him every day. And out of this comes this profound message that probably has helped billions of Christians ever since that would never have come to him if he hadn't have been chained as a prisoner at that moment. And that's where it's so crazy. You have no idea how God intends to use your hardship right now. You have no idea. You can't know. But one day you will. Maybe in this life, maybe not. One day we may be standing in the presence of God and we're going to see the impact that we had and all the big and little things that we did, many that we thought were unnoticed, unappreciated, and undervalued. The problem with open doors, though, no matter how wide or unobstructed they may be, is that they don't really make a difference if you don't go through them. They will actually come to nothing, absolutely nothing they will accomplish. Reminds me of a Far Side cartoon one time. Gary Larson is one of my favorite cartoonists. He is my favorite cartoonist of all times. But he showed this young boy walking to school, going up the steps to the classroom, seeking to open the door. And it said on, on the title, School for the Gifted. And then on the side of the door, it said, Pull. And he's pushing as hard as he can. <laughs> I like the irony. <laughs> You see, sometimes we're pushing so hard to get what we want and it doesn't open up to us when God simply says, if you'll just pull, I'll show you the way. Has God opened a door in your life yet you're hesitating? I don't judge you for it. I've been there. But what gets bad is when God makes it clear he wants you to move and you refuse to. We do it because of fear we do it because of pride and willfulness. We do it because we don't believe God can do anything good with us because after all, we're us and we see ourselves in the mirror every day and we're not impressed. But you see, you only see what God and his grace can do by stepping through the door. Importantly, no one can shut that door, not even you. And what will happen is eventually God is going to compel you in such a way. Paul said to the Corinthians, the love of Christ compels us. We find ourselves compelled to do something that otherwise we wouldn't do. And when we do, we experience a degree of grace that we never thought ever existed. But secondly, he told them, he said, I, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, to, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and, and, and acknowledge that I have loved you. We talked last week about the primary opponents of them, the people who were given the greatest hardships and headaches, were the fact the Jewish community that saw them as heretics. But you see, the second thing I see them doing is they didn't allow opposition to stop them. The primary reason you and I hesitate to go through open doors is fear in response to opposition. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul said, there is a wide open door for a great work here, although many oppose, them, oppose me. And we read the history and we know what happened. Paul gets arrested, he gets charged, he's going to jail, he's being you know, attacked by all these different people and God delivered him because there was an open door. 
But it didn't come with no conflict, with no problems, without having to face oppositions. You see, you have to understand there will always be opposition. It can come from families, it can come from friends, it can come from colleagues and coworkers, it can come from the government, it can, because it all comes really ultimately from the same source, and that is Satan. Our problem is that we measure the opposition by our own strength which is the third thing, embracing our weakness. Jesus said to them, I know that you have little strength. <laughs> the Greek doesn't help at all. It's, it's <laughs> microstunimus. I mean, you're just a wee little man. <laughs> it's not a compliment. You have little strength. You don't have that much going for you. You're not important. You're not powerful. You're not wealthy. You don't have friends in high places. You have friends in low places. See, trials and testings actually are designed to teach us to stop measuring our challenges by our own strength rather than measuring them by God's strength. When Zechariah spoke to the Joshua, the high priest, who he saw in a vision was dressed in rags, was defeated and downtrodden because he returned to a city that had been defeated and downtrodden, nothing but burnt embers and rocks strewn around the place. And in this point of, of seeing just total devastation of the city, hopelessness began to set into this priest's heart. And Zechariah comes to him with a word from God saying, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. If you break that down, the word might is wealth, ability, intellect, eloquence, resources, the kind of natural abilities and resources that we think enables us, that we have to have in order to move forward. He says it's not going to be based upon anything that you bring to the table. It's not going to be by power, by vigor or vitality or strength. All those things that we make this long list of, our possessions, our abilities, our wealth, our resources, our vigor, our, our vitality, our strength, our determination, our brilliance, this whole list of things that we copy down saying, that's why they were successful. God said, you will succeed, not because of any of those things, but because I am the Lord God who is almighty. Now, let me break down the Hebrew, that word almighty. It means he has all might. <laughs> he has all power. That's the God we serve. And the question isn't, what has God asked me to do? The question is, is this what he wants? And if I'm doing it, I can't lose. I'm going to win. I'm going to succeed. I'm going to reach whatever pinnacle God wants me to reach. And that's what I'll reach, and I don't want to reach for anything else. I know some people have come to me and said, brother, you know, you need to really be open to this thing because don't you want everything that God has for you? And my answer is simple. I want everything that God has for me and I want nothing that he doesn't have for me. I just want to be what he wants me to be. It's the recognition of our weakness that forces us to humbly depend upon his strength. And that's the whole point. Which lastly, he says to us, Susan, because you have kept my command to endure patiently. This word patiently, endure patiently, it's, a, it's an interesting word in the original. It means to have this expectant hope. I know something good is going to happen, you know. 
It's like the story I've told many times, but I think it's always so illustrative. Of the two boys, one was an extreme optimist, the other one was an extreme pessimist. They tried all sorts of things to moderate their personalities. Nothing worked. They just stayed fixed in these opposite polar dispositions. And so finally, one of these big brain psychiatrists comes up with a way. He says, I know how we can change these guys. And so he took the first kid who was just as pessimistic as you could possibly be, and they put him in a room filled with every toy on the planet and left him in there for several hours. He thought there's nothing he can find wrong with this. And they took the second kid and they put him in a room and all there was was knee-deep horse manure. And they said, how he can see anything good in this, I don't know. And so they came back after several hours. They opened the first door and the kid that was pessimistic was throwing the toys on the ground, breaking them and saying, these cheap toys, they don't make anything good anymore. And they just backed away and shut the door and thought, well, that didn't work. Let's see what happened in the next room. So they go to the next room and they open the door and this kid who's an optimist is running circles in the room going, yahoo, grabbing handfuls of horsemen who are throwing it in the air and celebrating. And they're so shocked. They said, what are you doing? And he looked at him. He says, when you got this much horseman who there's got to be a pony in here someplace. <laughs> now that's that kind of a positive mental attitude thing. But we're not talking about toys and we're not talking about horses, are we? We're talking about the hope of our calling. God has a plan for your life. And it's that expectant hope that I, I don't know how this is going to work out. And how many times I've had to sit with people and say, you know, what's happened is terrible. And I don't know how this is going to work out for good. But, but God who created the universe with a word can speak into your circumstance and do something profound and miraculous. The word has associated with it a kind of a passionateness. It's not just sitting back and going, well, I hope things work out. It's this sense that this matters. There's a perseverance because we know that our labor is not in vain, that God isn't going to waste a single millisecond of my life. I am so excited when I get to heaven to see how God took even mistakes and use them for his glory. Actually, the first mistake he made was my conception. But, you know, it's, it's one of those things I, I just look forward to and go, God, how are you going to do this? But here's the part that matters and where we'll pick up next week. Because he said, because of these things in you, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. To keep you, the word means to carefully watch over, to care for, to guard, to protect. You are the apple of his eye. There is nothing that's touching you that God didn't foresee and didn't allow for good and even sometimes for bad. He says, you have to understand that I will keep you because you're my precious possession. I chose you for myself and I will keep you you can rest in that. And he says, I, particularly I'll keep you from that hour of trial. This word trial here is interesting. Parasmos, it means a thing that will test and prove the authenticity of who you are. There's a trial that's going to come upon the earth that's going to reveal the hearts of men, whether they will honor and fear and love God or whether they will hate him. And that's why it's so powerful when you get later on in Revelation and the judgments of God are coming on the earth and it said these men are cursing God three times over it tells us they're blaspheming God and blaming him for their hardships 
we would think when we read the judgments that are coming that they'd fall on their knees and say, God, forgive us, have mercy on us. And instead they become more hateful of God all the time. But he says it's something that's gonna come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. You see, the Bible divides human history into basically two major ages. There's the present age, which we're in, which is wholly bad. When you see evil in the world, it's because we live in a broken world. Sin is prevailing. But there's an age to come which is going to be wholly good. There's the banishment of all bad, as it tells us in the end of Revelation. But in between those moments, that transitional point is a, what he calls a terrible time of destruction when judgment will fall upon the world because of its sins. In fact, Jesus was one of the first to give us a detailed description of what that was going to be like. In Matthew 24, 19, he said, he used the word dreadful. The interesting word dreadful means that it's full of things that are dread. <laughs> You'll dread, full dread. It's, it's, it's not, uh, Paul called it perilous. He told them terrible. He called it uh, dangerous times. It literally means a time of great suffering, times that are extremely bad. He says, Bad times are going to be coming. You're going to be going, well, yeah, bad times happen. We have good times. We have bad times. So what's new? Well, Jesus qualifies this dreadful time. He said, for then there will be great distress, megaslipsis, it means a, a, a tribulation and anguish, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. We often refer to that as the great tribulation. That's really going to be the focus of after we get through chapters 4 and 5 and get into chapter 6 where he begins to talk about these judgments and what they come. And when you see, you're going to realize that everything that describes there has happened in measures around the world at various times. But this is going to be a time of concerted, cataclysmic, catastrophic events happening one after another, after another, after another. So much so that Jesus said, if he didn't stop it, there would be no life that would survive. How is he going to keep us for that hour? Well, that's what you've got to come back for next week. <laughs> <laughs>